Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we are going to dig deep into the proverbial mailbag, check out the comment boards, look on the message boards, and kind of take the best of the past week of questions, comments, and feedback that we get. You know, across the China Africa Project, we now have almost 600,000 followers uh, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on SoundCloud, on Twitter, uh, our podcast subscribers, you listening to this show. And so pretty much every day we get uh, comments, critiques, uh, and in various interactions. And we thought it'd be fun to kind of take some of those questions and comments, uh, particularly of the news of this week, and break it down and see what people think. So, Kobus, let me kick it off to you. First question uh, from one of our good friends, a good follower, Marius Kotor, who is one of our more active Facebook users, and she had a question for you about the African Union. Yeah, she was saying, asking the simple question, would the uh, would an American leader have been treated in Africa the way the leader of the African Union was treated recently in oh, the U.S.? Okay, so why don't you explain first what happened with the United States Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and the head of the African Union? So this was quite a funny story, I have to say. <laughs> the, um, it's it's indicative of of dysfunction, I think, in the Trump administration at the State Department generally. Um, the head of the of the African Union, um, Musa Faki, um, newly elected head, um, he visited the U.S. He went to the U.N. in New York, and then after that, he was he was scheduled to go and meet with uh, with Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson in Washington. Then, like you know, so so they they're busy doing all of the arrangements for a while. There's zero answer from State Department. There's just radio silence from them, and then he arrives in Washington only to be told that no, there's actually no time for Rex to listen to meet him. Um, and if he'd like, you know, kind of, he can meet with a more gen, uh, you know, if he can have brief meeting with a more junior member of the State Department, which of course he then refused, and then he left in a half and you know kind of flew away, and it all looked terrible. Um, it's in it, it particular. Particularly as everyone on earth then pointed out, it looked terrible in, in comparison with the way that the Chinese do business, you know, in Africa, where every single African head of state is, you know, gets the full red carpet treatment in Beijing. Um, and, you know, this is obviously the point that Marius was also making, that no, no, um, you know, American dignitary would be treated this way in Africa. Yeah. Yet one of the highest dignitaries of the entire continent is treated very shabbily in the U.S. It was, it was shocking. I mean, and this is, you know, something that just would not happen in China uh, because the Chinese are obsessed with protocol. And there's also something very interesting that you brought up is that how the amount of time that senior Chinese leaders from the prime minister to the foreign minister to the president himself spend with the smallest African country. I mean, the president of Togo gets the full treatment. Uh, that doesn't happen in the United States. Now, let's not say it's one is better or worse than the other, but when it comes to protocol, these things just do not happen in China, these kinds of mistakes. But it reminded me a little bit of the insult that Goodluck Jonathan, the former president of Nigeria, felt at the U.S.-China summit that Barack Obama held, I think it was two years ago in Washington, where instead of meeting with uh, presidents and prime ministers and various heads of state one-on-one, -on -one, as is done by the Chinese and other major powers – uh, Obama had a group meeting of various African leaders together. And a lot of African yes. leaders, particularly Good Luck Jonathan, said that was very, very offensive. I mean, you're putting 
the largest economy in Africa, the largest country in Africa. I think it's, I think Nigeria is number one in population too, if I'm correct. Uh, yes. Together with other countries, and it just felt like a slight. And I can understand why President Jonathan at the time was offended by that. So this isn't the first time that the United States has thrown a little bit of shade towards African leaders. And I think it really, really stings, particularly as we hear so much about African leaders feeling like they are more empowered now to choose their partners. And these types of slights go a long way in my view. And I mean, we all know that that the Trump administration has had problems filling key middle-level positions in State Department. I mean, that that's been discussed for a while. They're apparently cutting the you know the budget for the State Department. So and and they're, they're clearly you know in disarray. But what it looks like, I think, from the African side, is just incredible high-handedness, um, and I think a, a, a blindness from the side of the U.S. that these leaders are living and, and the continent as a whole is living with this constant inferiority complex. And they constantly feel dissed by everyone and dismissed by everyone. So, you know, kind of if you want to make friends in Africa, and there's a lot of very like real reasons why the US would want to, then you need to step out and like be nice and polite and like pay these people respect because they expect to be dissed. And then if you know so, and then if you do end up dissing them, then you you're feeding into this kind of worldview that they have of the US anyway. Um, you know, kind of which is not a very productive way to kick off to kick off relations with the with the, with the African Union especially because um Faki is generally seen as a security hawk, um, you know, kind of th- that uh, whose in- interests in you know anti-terrorism align pretty well with the US. So he would have been a very good ally for the Trump administration probably. Yeah. Well, it all just plays into the public diplomacy battle because here we are talking about it. The press was talking about it, and it just doesn't help the the, the Trump administration in Africa. But I think w- one kind of key point here: maybe the Trump administration doesn't really care about Africa, and I think that's a very important point here because we have not heard the word Africa come out of Donald Trump's mouth in the first 100 days of his administration. Clearly, it's not a priority for Rex Tillerson. So maybe it's just kind of like a, well, whatever. So we'll see. But it was a slight. It went noticed by Marius Kotor. Thank you so much for your comment and for all of your participation, Marius, on Facebook. Uh, So I think that's worthwhile. Hey, by the way, Kobus, before we go on to our next question, um, I want to give a little shout out to uh, Igneous Terenus. I hope I'm saying your name right. Uh, he was a, he's a fan of the show, uh, been listening for two years, and it was remarkable, Gomez, when I met him, how he knew every show that we had done. I mean, he, he, was, he knew all of our guests. He knew all of the topics. I mean, he was a loyal fan. <laughs> That's amazing. Fan. Wow. It was fantastic. I met Igneous up in Shanghai this week. Uh, he, knew, he heard that I was coming to Shanghai, and he said he really wanted to meet me. And so we spent uh, a wonderful hour and a half uh, in Starbucks talking about China, Africa, and his goals to maybe work there one day and how much he enjoys listening to the show. So thank you, Igneous, for reaching out, and it was a pleasure to meet you. And if other listeners are passing through Johannesburg or here in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, if you're coming through on vacation, drop us an email. Uh, you can reach me at eric at uh, chinaafricaproject.com, and Kobus is Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We always love to meet listeners to the show. So, okay. So, Igneous, hats off. Thank you so much. Let's go now to our second question. Uh, Kobus, I'll let you uh, put this one to me. 
Okay, this question is from Joseph uh, in Uganda, and it came via, via, via Facebook. He says, Eric and Kobus, the uh, the setting up of the new Chinese footwear, f- um, you know, company and f- factory in Ethiopia was very exciting, and the f- and the new news that we heard this week that they're planning to expand their operations in Africa is even more exciting. Um, do you think this means more Chinese companies will move their manufacturing operations to Africa? I want them to come to Tanzania where we need the jobs. So he's from Uganda, but he wants them to come to Tanzania. Hmm. Okay. I got this message uh, on LinkedIn and over on my LinkedIn page, just look me up, Eric Olander, and you can follow me. We have about 254,000 people now who are following uh, our posts on on my LinkedIn page again, Eric Olander, O L A N D E R, and you'll see this great great discussion going on. So Joseph sent me a message on LinkedIn with that question, and I posted this article about uh, Huajin. And for those of you not familiar, Huajin is one of the world's largest shoe manufacturing companies. Uh, China today remains the largest shoe manufacturing destination. So just to give you some context of the shoe business, I have a lot of friends here in Vietnam who work in shoe manufacturing, so I know too many random facts about shoe manufacturing. But any, any given year, there are about 13 billion pairs of shoes that are sold around the world. Consider this, 12 billion are made in China. I mean, it's just a stunning number. Uh, Even though it is staggering, 12 billion pairs of shoes are made in China every year. Now, more of that shoe manufacturing is leaving China because the cost of production is going up, environmental uh, regulations are going up, and a lot of it's coming to countries like here in Vietnam. But companies like Huajin are taking their business to Ethiopia, most notably. Uh, But now they're, they're kind of flirting with the idea of expanding beyond Uh, Ethiopia. Call me very, very skeptical. And this is a point that I make uh, in our discussions on Facebook and LinkedIn quite a bit. Huajin remains the poster child for Chinese manufacturing in Africa. There have been a lot of other cases, particularly in South Africa, where the white goods manufacturer Hisense has moved. Uh, First Automotive Works, which is a car company, they've moved. Uh, There is some tech manufacturing that's now happening uh, from Chinese companies in Africa. But for the most part, uh, industrial and kind of consumer good manufacturing is very, very limited. And it comes to my main point, which is too many people focus on the cost of labor as the main point about why Africa would be attractive to Chinese manufacturers. And that's only a very small part of what goes into the manufacturing process. Infrastructure, power supply, access to ports, legal systems, all of those things really matter. So until countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda can do better on that main point of infrastructure, infrastructure being key, having access to supply chains so a company like Huajin doesn't have to import all the raw materials for the shoes from China, manufacture it in Ethiopia, and then sell it into the European or U.S. markets, the infrastructure is key. So I get frustrated every time I see the Huajin story keep coming up because I think it misleads a lot of people, Kobus, as to what the reality is. And manufacturing in Africa is still far from a kind of a glorious reality that so many people want. I think people who are interested in applying this kind of um, East Asian, you know, model of, of of small manufacturing to Africa needs to think about how that model really worked in, you know, in, in reality in East Asia. Like if, if you look at a country like Japan, 
You, it isn't just the big company, you know, making the shoes. It's all of the little little factories around it who make the uppers and the shoelaces and the heels and all of these kind of things. And then also frequently in East Asia, it is, uh, you know, it it was a, a, you know, I mean, you know, poverty levels in East Asia changed over time, but it was uh, they had some form of built-in domestic audience or domestic cons- consumption base. Now. Africa has that. So the problem is that they don't, at the moment, have enough money to spend on actual shoes. And you will see when you read interviews of the Hwajin people, they almost exclusively export all the stuff they make in Ethiopia to Europe. And so Europe, you know, kind of makes it's close. It makes sense, you know. It, it you know, in, in a in a in a kind of a positioning, it, it makes a lot of sense to position in East Africa, you know, if you're going to be exporting to Europe. But it would make a lot more sense if you could sell both in East Africa and in Europe. So. I think it, it would, you know, a lot of the the growth of this or the the coming of of Chinese companies are going to very much depend on the growth of African companies. Like once African companies are up and running and they and they're selling to a local a, a local and or regional kind of base, then it would make a lot more sense for a big kind of behemoth to also move there and to draw on some of you know what what is already happening there. To be the lone flower in the desert is much harder. So, Joseph, to answer your question, uh, no, I don't think a lot's going to happen uh, on the manufacturing front. Um, there's one other key point that I want to bring up, and I think this is particularly relevant uh, for Uganda right now. I can't really tell if Joseph is from Uganda or Tanzania, given he mentioned both in his question. But let's assume he's from Uganda, as he said. Uh, governance. Let's talk about governance. And the key difference, Kobus, that you pointed out, comparing, say, Asia's economic rise to Africa's economic rise, was the leaders of Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, even today in Vietnam to some extent, less so, and then certainly China, they were focused in on laser beams, like laser beams, on industrialization and agricultural reform and land reform. Uh, As Deborah Braudigam, the famous professor from Johns Hopkins University, points out that a lot of times the land reform in China was done at the barrel of a gun and forcibly done, but it was done. And I think this governance question is so critical because, you know, Taiwan's leadership was, you know, they were just focused on building out a manufacturing base and they built the educational systems. They focused on the the infrastructure, all of the key components that go into building a successful manufacturing operation in an export-oriented economy were done in Asia. I don't see a lot of that in, in Africa. This is about management training academies. Again, infrastructure we've talked about. So governance being a very, very big issue in many African countries. What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I completely agree. I think I think you see you're seeing kind of slow moves in that direction, especially in countries like Rwanda. I think, um, but you, you're not getting this kind of like like massive national mobilization towards industrialization that you see that you've seen you know in Taiwan, in in um, Japan a lot, in in no. South Korea a lot, um, and you know land, you mentioned land reform. I mean, land reform is a massive issue in Africa, but it's land reform in opposite directions. It's land Reform that that's especially in South Africa's land reform that's that's aimed at trying to deal with the legacies of colonialism and apartheid, where people's land were taken away by other kind of entities. You know, so so the, the kind of the the forms of land reform that were mentioned in in Asia and the forms that are happening in Africa are, are very different. Sure. Okay, Kobus. Let me read one that you got, uh, dear CAP China Africa Project. Uh, I guess you got this one by email. So you post so many articles 
about Africa's, Africans being taken to China for training. Taken sounds like they were forcibly taken. They were invited to China for training. The railway <laughs> like staff. That's right. The railway staff in Kenya, various groups of mobile phone technicians, and so on. But how valuable do you think that training is? Will they ever get a job in China with that training? And is the training high enough quality that they can help Africa when they come back? Uh, training is a very important topic, and one like we get a lot of comments when we post stories on this because obviously a lot of our listeners and followers are students and young people. So, training, Kobus, what do you think of the quality of training that uh, so many Africans are getting in China? I think it very much depends on the particular case and what they what they're training to do. So, if if like in the case of these the railway engineers in Kenya who were you know were taken to China and trained there for a while. They were training uh, to. They were being trained to use a Chinese-built system, um, you know, kind of by the people who built the system. So that obviously is directly relevant training, you know, kind of to the work that they that they're going to be doing. Um, in other cases, I think you know you you find cases of kind of agricultural training um, happening not only in, in, in China, but, you know, I've, I've seen examples in South Korea. In some of those cases, I don't know how applicable East Asian, you know, kind of training would be to African realities. Um, and in terms of the question of whether those, those trainees are going to find jobs in China, no. I don't think so. I don't think there's, there's really any chance. No, and that's, what do you think? That is not the point of the training, is to train Africans in order to stay in China. Uh, we've done a number of shows on the difficulties that African migrants are facing in China. Uh, the Chinese have made it rather clear as a society that they're not that open and tolerant to immigrants. That's a very broad generalization, but at the same time, based on a lot of the feedback that not just from uh, African migrants, but other migrants. Uh, China is getting more difficult for everybody to get work permits and working visas uh, to to be there. So this is just whoever wrote the email. I don't have the name here. Uh, these, this training is nothing to do with you know staying in China and finding a job. One very important point to talk about here is not just the vocational training that the Chinese are doing in agriculture, uh, in journalism. We've seen this, and then obviously talking about technology, Huawei bringing over a thousand engineers every year to China. But China now sponsors scholarships for more African university and college students than any other country in the world. And I think that is a really critical part of this discussion here because the quality of education and scholarships that people are being afforded to in China is now significantly higher in volume than what they were getting in Europe or the United States. We can probably argue about the quality of education that they're getting in places like China. I studied in Hong Kong. I have to admit that the Chinese universities, and I attended uh, Beijing Nashua, Beijing University uh, for a period of time, and that's you know the Harvard or the Yale of China. Eh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I I can't say I was terribly impressed. Um, you know, and I know that's going to offend some of our Chinese listeners when you say you're not very impressed with Harvard or Yale. Um, but it was, you know, there's no discussion in classes. It's a very Confucian way of learning. Kobus, you studied in Japan. Uh, it's the same way. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, what I've seen from Witts University when I was there with you uh, is classrooms are much more lively. And there's a much more immersive dialogue that goes on between professor and students. And in China, it's, you know, you sit in a class and the, lect the professor lectures and you take your notes and you take your exams. And that's, for the most part, the way that it's very conventional, traditional education. And so one of the things I worry about is all this training is being done in a Chinese context by Chinese professors or Chinese instructors using Chinese methods. 
and people coming from Africa or other countries are not accustomed to that way of learning. So how effective can that education be uh, given the differences in culture and education style? I think it very much depends also on the the culture and the per individual personality of the particular African students, you know, because I think I think some of them uh, adapt very well to that kind of system. Um, I know several African students who, who spend a lot of time in China and who are very happy there and feel, you know, that it was a very worthwhile thing for them to do. Um, other others find the system rigid or difficult to deal with. Um, what I'm interested in is how it's going to affect. Uh, you know how it's going to affect Africa in the long term. You know because obviously, especially graduate study shapes people in particular kind of ways that you know kind of it's it's, it's a lot. You spend a big chunk of your time in a graduate school. You do a very very intensive work, and you come out a kind of a changed person than the person you were when you went in. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the graduates from all of these programs, like how how they take that further and what kind of, uh, you know, whether you're going to see some form of like hybridization between Chinese and African education systems in some cases, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, because frequently not, 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 I, I don't think it'll happen on a, like a full institutional level, but, um, you know, uh, someone who, you know, if, if you have a PhD and you, you, you're working as a, as an advisor in your small way, you have this kind of shaping role, you know, that you, that, um, and, and where you draw, you know, crucially on your own training, um, and frequently that's the only training you have. Um, so it will be very interesting to see how then that what kind of influence comes from that. Well, I mean, let's go back to the Rhodes Scholarship. The British sponsored these scholarships in order to train the elite for the colonies. And I, you know, I'm not equating necessarily you know what China is doing to any form of colonialization, but the reason, in part, that they are doing these sponsorships is in order for young African students to build relationships in China, to understand the Chinese system, to learn how to speak the language. So when they eventually go home, there is a natural affinity and a comfort in dealing with China. So it's a long-term investment that the Chinese are making, just as the Americans with their scholarships and the British with their scholarships did. But it makes a lot of sense in many ways. It's not a payoff that happens in three, five, ten years. It's a payoff that happens, as you kind of rightly pointed out, over 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, Because they do, PhD students make deep, deep relationships. But I think it also is about the the framing of the worldview. That if you've spent time in China, it's not the boogeyman that it is for those who haven't spent time there. Uh, And and one other very quick point that I want to make. I am blown away every single time I'm in Shanghai or Beijing or anywhere in China where I run into uh, to people from Africa because the language ability is incredible. I've met more Africans yeah. who speak a beautiful Mandarin than I have, you know, certainly among Westerners. There's not many Westerners among us that's, that speak Mandarin that well. And I'm always just immensely impressed with the language skills of so many African students who I think immerse themselves and apply themselves to the language studies much more than I think other students from other countries do. Yes. Well, the last time I was in Beijing, I also met with some African students and they were all there. Their Mandarin was intimidatingly perfect. Um, and, you know, and, and it was also this very interesting situation where you could see that a lot of them, you know, their home languages were a lot of different, you know, they don't, didn't necessarily share a lingua franca and Mandarin was the lingua franca. So they were bantering back and forth in, between them in Mandarin, um, you know, kind of because some of them were Portuguese speaking, some of them were English speaking, some of them were French speaking and so on. Um, so it was, it was very impressive. Yeah. So 
kudos there. Uh, let's move on. We have two more to come to come here. So I posted on LinkedIn. One of the things I do on LinkedIn, uh, also on Twitter as well, is I post these kind of factoids or a quote. And one of the factoids that I saw was, and this is, a, uh, you know, if you're a China-Africa geek like we are, the annual trade figures are something that you actually look forward to. I mean, it's really, you can see how obsessive we are on this. Uh, but the <laughs> annual trade figures came out for 2016, and they were at $149.1 billion in bilateral trade between China and Africa in 2016. Now, that sounds like an impressive number. And in my factoid graphic that I published on LinkedIn, I did not put any qualification to that number. I did not say it was up, it was down, it was good, it was bad. And so there's a lot of comments from people who said, wow, that's great. Uh, Alhako2000, and he didn't have a, a name, that was just his user handle on LinkedIn, said, quote, that is a good development. Now, Kobus, it's funny because when I saw the $149.1 billion, I thought, wow, Something's off about that. It, that seems weird. And the way the Chinese are spinning this number is that it is a big number. It is still remaining – China still remains Africa's number one trading partner so that Africa trades more with mm. China than anyone else. But then we got a comment underneath that from Kai Xue, who, again, is one of the smartest folks that I know. And he's, he's a regular commentator, particularly on LinkedIn – uh, and also on Facebook as well. And he's been a guest on our show a couple of times. Uh, he's an attorney in Beijing, and he wrote something very interesting that I'd like to get your comments on, uh, Kobus. So he said, quote, trade between China and Africa is down, way down. Quote, uh, trade between China and Africa exceeded $220 billion in 2014. He says, I am sticking with my prediction made long ago that by the end of the decade, the importance of the China-Africa relationship will recede quite a bit. So Kai Shui is a bear on China-Africa relations. He really kind of articulates this idea that while Africa is not that – well, China is extremely important to Africa, Africa is not important at all to China. And this really indicates it. I mean, for a country like China, $149 billion in bilateral trade is actually not that much. This is about – Four uh, yeah. percent, three to four percent of China's gross global trade. It's less trade than what China does with Australia alone. So we're talking fifty-four countries in Africa do less trade than what China does trade with Australia alone. So, what's your take on these numbers that came out from two twenty or more or less over two hundred? We were we've been over two hundred for a couple of years now, dr down dramatically to one forty-nine point one. I wish I could find, you know, obviously I'm just lacking the knowledge, but I, I, I wish I could um, find or speak with, with someone who could unpack that number in terms of, and contextualize it in, in the context of the, the slump in the commodity prices. So what I was wondering about is, okay, so, so the amount of money like that, you know, the, the, the value of the trade has declined. But I was wondering if the volume of the trade, the physical volume of the, the kind of raw commodities have declined or increased. Because I remember reading so much, you know, all of these, um, there's, uh, there's been a flurry of, report, of reports over the last few weeks, keeping saying that um, how China's trade, oil trade with West Africa, particularly Nigeria and Angola, is now the highest it's ever been. Um, and, you know, kind of like China, China's consuming more West 
African oil than it's ever it, it ever has in the past. So I keep wondering is so is, is is this how does one see this number in the context of the fact that the oil price is down compared to 2014, um, and then but you know but but that the volume seems to be rising. Or you know, it's, it's it's such such a like enigmatic number for me when I actually start trying to uh, to think through it. I haven't seen the breakdown of the trade volumes and and specifically what's being traded. But let me put some educated guesses as to what the situation is, and I'm hoping that people like Kai Shue will correct me uh, on LinkedIn and Facebook in our podcast comments. Okay, so I think you're right. It's heavily heavily weighted by oil, uh, so it's not a healthy trade. This, again, you know, deeply entrenches the oil oligarchies in places like Angola, Nigeria, and the Sudans. So it's not healthy for Africa that so much of this trade is occupied by, uh, by oil. That's number one. Number two, I think that it's a highly imbalanced amount of trade. So the trade in deficits in Africa are probably very, very high uh, for the most part. The Chinese are selling far more to most African countries than they are buying from uh, that the Chinese are buying. So the oil economies and the natural resource economies uh, are selling quite a bit, but Botswana is not selling much. Um, you know, Rwanda, for the most part, doesn't have a lot of natural resources, is not selling much. So this is potentially unsustainable trade in certain countries if we look on a country-by-country level. And what it is worrisome to me that the trade volumes are down so much because the trade volumes help tell a narrative particularly in places like Beijing, where different parts of the world are all vying for attention, just like in Washington and Brussels. They're, they're vying for attention from policymakers. They're vying for uh, attention from, obviously, the president and where the president travels and the amount of aid and the amount of money. And so when the trade volumes go down, it reaffirms to certain critics or other um, factions in China who want to maybe direct foreign policy more towards the U.S. or Europe or Latin America or the Gulf right now or One Belt, One Road. And Africa potentially may just fall out of favor because it's just not that important anymore. And people go back to thinking of like, yeah, whatever, you know, Africa. And I think Kai Xue's sentiments that he's expressing from Beijing are potentially very, very worrisome for Africa. And if I was an African policymaker, intelligence operative, diplomat, I would be reporting up to my president or prime minister, you need to watch out. The China gravy train may come to an end, and it may come to an end quite suddenly if the trade volumes go down as fast as they seem to be going down. Yes, I, 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 I tend to agree with you. Um, you know, kind of, I... It, it would be fascinating to see how this this is viewed, um, you know, kind of in in government circles in Africa. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the, the, to a certain extent, the, the decline wasn't a surprise to me um, because we've just been hearing the story for a while. You know, China China's cooling down on resources. China's manufacturing less, shifting its economy, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't need the you know all of the the story that we've seen over the last few years, where people keep saying, you know, raw commodities are going to be are going to be like less important for China over the next while and this seems to be confirming confirming this i mean it is also a sad kind of indication of the fact that of course africa still is stuck in the raw economy extraction economy 
trap, mm. you know, and that they haven't managed, despite all of the big talk about, you know, beneficiation of, of resources, they haven't actually managed to beneficiate anything. Um, you know, so so it, it is, a, you know, I mean, it's it's a, it's an understandable failure because Africa faces a lot of problems, but it still is this kind of big failure of African economic planning. I and think. That, that goes back to the governance question we talked about earlier and, and just the, the policy planning process, which doesn't seem to be happening to move these countries beyond, or too many of these countries beyond dependence on raw materials and natural resources. Okay, last comments of the show. And uh, this one's a little bit sensitive for me. So it's because they're criticisms directed against me. Uh, and I think they're fair sure. criticisms. And I have, uh, and I, I, I'm going to do some self-flagellation here and, you know, bow my head on the table three times uh, in, in humility. Uh, let me give you two comments. One comes from Lizzie Parsons, who's a listener here in Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, I met her – I've met her a couple times for lunch and one of the comments that she points out and she – it was – now it's – I see it as a very fair comment. She says that I often kind of describe the West, quote unquote, as if it's a singular entity and I criticize the West and – you know, and she says that it's not fair to lump together all of the European countries, all of the North American countries together into this single kind of monolithic entity. And it's ironic because I criticize other people for generalizing and characterizing Africa. We certainly don't even say Asia that much as a singular entity. Uh, but, you know, and her point was that if you compare policy and, you know, the outlook from Stockholm and you compare it to, you know, Rome or what, you know, how the Parisians think, which is different than people in Bonn, um, you know, Europe is a very, very diverse place, just as the United States is an incredibly diverse place. So her point is, you know, not right, you know, in a little bit of a ding on me for, uh, for, for putting the West all into one simple basket. She also says that, you know, there's a theme in the show that I have been very down and negative on NGOs and aid groups. And that, too, is absolutely true. And she points out, because <laughs> she, is, she works in the nonprofit sector, um, that it's not fair to group all aid workers and all aid business into one lump of ineffective, uh, idealistic, you know, corrupt, money-grubbing, political, uh, you know, all the negative things that I think about the aid business. And she is absolutely right that not all NGOs and aid are as dysfunctional as I make it sound to be. I have had you know, about 15 to 20 years of experience working with NGOs in Washington and Africa and here in Asia. Um, very few of them impress me. Uh, that may be the case, as Lizzie said, but that doesn't mean all of them. So Lizzie, I think your comments are absolutely fair, correct, and I'm going to do a better job. Also want to give a quick shout out to Christopher Jarrett, who regularly posts on our Facebook page. He says, um, quote, in your podcast, there are continual snippy comments about North America or the West not doing anything. And he went on to, uh, to criticize me for the same thing. So from now on, I will do my best to avoid the reference to the West and to be specific about certain countries and to be specific about certain NGOs uh, because it, uh, I think it is an unfair criticism. Okay. Look, okay. Point taken. You know, kind of um, Stockholm and Washington DC are two different places. They, you know, they they do um, they they do different things. They have different viewpoints. You know, they operate differently in the world. Sure. And then in the second place, obviously, you know, kind of not all NGOs. NGOs are a very very complicated, like mixed bunch of different organizations, and they do different work. And some of that work is very very valuable. 
completely taken I, I completely agree with both of those points however I also I tend to want to push back against this a little bit and you know kind of now I'm, I'm speaking from the position that okay you know again I'm you know, as we've mentioned before I'm a white guy but I you know for the except for the bit that I was living in um, in Japan for while I was in grad school I was my whole life was living in Africa um, and from the African perspective it does make sense to talk about the West it does make sense to flatten the West into a block because the, the West it does frequently act as a block they um, you know kind of they, they have um, very powerful institutions you know multilateral institutions where they act in unison and I mean you know so something like the EU is a block so you know the EU the the fact that the EU operates as a, as a unit to a certain extent makes the the differences between Bonn and and Athens moot because mm -hmm. the, you know whatever those differences are they manage to overcome them to act together um, and you know the seen from the position of Africa and seen from the, the position of the global South the West is a lot more similar than it is different you know. Um, Really, it is very difficult, I think, for for most Africans, even Africans like me who've been to both countries. It is frequently quite difficult to really say, okay, so this is Canada is really different in this kind of way, and America is really different in that kind of way. From the south, they look very similar, and they tend to speak very frequently with a unified voice. Albeit now, you know, during the Trump administration and the Brexit era, that has become very complicated. Um, but you know, historically, in and their relationship with, with the global south and their relationship with Africa as a whole, they tended to present themselves as a block. Um, and so I don't think it's yeah. necessarily so so problematic to discuss it in well, that and, and I guess maybe it matters because I am an American and I am a Westerner and you're not. Um, you know, and maybe yeah, people are yeah. kind of taking me to task that I should be – because I know the difference between a Canadian and American – and so that might be one of the pressures that's coming down. I'll, I'll tell you where I come from on this. Um, I get frustrated between what I perceive as the blatant hypocrisy of particularly the United States. Um, I don't have anything against my country as a culture or as a country. I do have a lot against my country uh, when it comes to policy. So when Barack Obama comes to a country like Vietnam – and starts talking about human rights here, which is a, a perfectly legitimate issue to talk about in other countries. Uh, but you need to be also prepared, Mr. Obama, and now Mr. Trump, to talk about human rights in your own country. Um, and when a lot of my, my young staffers in my office were saying, well, why is he talking to us about human rights when the United States has prison overcrowding, which Amnesty International has qualified as a human rights violation, we have a death penalty process, which is, you know, absurd by many international standards. You know, we, we have a homeless problem, a wealth inequality that is on par with many developing countries, particularly in major urban areas. Um, and we have, obviously, a, a problem with minorities and law enforcement, uh, where human rights are being played out on the streets all the time. And so I feel that Americans... And the United States policy process in general still is acting as if it's 1975 and it's the Cold War and the United States is the kind of guiding light of goodness against the evil Soviet Union and nobody's paying attention to the shortcomings in our own country. Now, I do possibly extrapolate that feeling towards other Western countries, which is where I think Christopher and Lizzie may be referring to it. Uh, but at the same time, I do want to hold... Uh, Western countries in Europe, in the United States, uh, accountable for the hypocrisy that I see them 
uh, promoting, just the same way we are trying to hold African countries accountable for their hypocrisy. You are doing an excellent job for talking about, you know, how African countries will play both hands by saying, on one hand, we are you know, Africa rising narrative, we're getting strong. And on the other hand, there is this victimization narrative that still hangs over much of uh, of Africa in this post-colonial era. Uh, China, again, we also try to poke holes in the hypocrisy where it's win-win development, and it's not always win-win development. Uh, too many Chinese do not understand what their country is doing in places like Africa and South America, and how it, it is complicated uh, what their policymaking is doing. So, so that's what our objective is. I might kind of come off a little bit too hard on the United States, and I will try to balance that out, uh, because I think it sounds more negative, and I don't say enough of the positives, which probably should come out at some point, but Mr. Trump is going to make that very difficult. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Woo! Okay. Yeah, the other, you know, the other issue, I think, just, just finally, the other issue is, is that I think it is, you know, I, I, again, I take Lizzie's point completely in terms of, you know, flattening, uh, you know, the work of NGOs. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of different kinds of NGOs. Um, and I do think we, we can sometimes use the word NGO as a kind of a shorthand for a particular NGO that we have in our minds, you know, and, and, and kind of erase the kind of differences between between them. And but then we also I mean we also interview lots of NGO people. Um, you know, so I mean um and and we do highlight a lot of, of NGO research. And, but I think it is important to critique NGOs because they don't critique themselves. You know? It's like NGOs have a lot riding on, on an idea of them as being the only light of morality in this world. Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of what's riding on that is economic and fundraising issues. So right. the only people who critique NGOs are academics um, and journalists occasionally, um, you know, but mo most of the time journalists tend to work with NGOs. So the only people who really do comprehensive, deep critique of what of the NGO system is, uh, is a flank of academia called aid critique. Um, and, you know, it's, they need to be critiqued because the thing is, is a lot of them, um, they are helping people, but people don't end up staying helped, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, kind of like it, the, 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 there is a, an endless cycle of crisis in which, the, you know, the, the NGO and aid system is, a, you know, a helper and yet also a, a partaker in, you know. So, so you know, there are legitimate questions to ask about the influence in the world. We will just be more specific going forward. We're not going to hold back on yes. criticism of NGOs, the West or the United States, but both Lizzie and Christopher's points are well taken. And I think this highlights the kind of relationship that we want to have with you, our listeners and our followers on social media, that when you do see things that you don't think are right about what we're doing, we want you to tell us. And it makes us better for it. And we are very, very humble uh, about learning from our followers and our fans and, and our listeners uh, because it makes the show better. It makes us better. And it, honestly, any interaction that we have with listeners to the show is just a thrill for both of us. So I think I speak on behalf of your uh, of you, Cobus, yes, as well. I mean, it just it's so exciting to see the growth uh, of what we've been doing over these past years, and we hope it will continue to grow. And so much of it depends on you guys giving us comments. Okay, normally we don't do this ourselves anymore, Cobus, but I think because of our show. Let's go ahead and give out some of the different of the many ways that people can get in touch with us. Go ahead with a few on your side. 
Um, I am on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Um, and I am my my email address on China Africa Project has been wonky. So you know, um, it it might be a good idea to give out my university email address as well, which is Kubus. That's C-O-B-U-S dot van staden v-a-n-s-t-a-d-e-n at vits that's w-i-t-s dot a-c dot z-a Ooh, your work email address that's a bold move on your part there Kobus. <laughs> i hope you get a lot of mail i think that would be a lot of fun uh a couple other places you can get in touch with us include our facebook page facebook.com slash china africa project uh 240,000 followers great discussions we're posting articles Every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, We also have an email newsletter that goes out every Monday. Uh, You can sign up over on our Facebook page, but you can also uh, go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. There you can sign up for the newsletter. You can listen to the show. You can read all of our articles. Uh, It's a great resource. It goes back now almost eight years of content on China-Africa relations. So it's turning into kind of a big archive Uh, in the past eight years of major China-Africa stories. We also have a new web address for our podcast. That's chinaafrica-podcast.com. All one word, chinaafrica, then a dash, podcast.com. And you can listen to all of our previous shows that are there for the past, again, eight years. Uh, So we invite you to check that out. You can find me over at Twitter at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. We love your comments. We love your feedback. Thank you so much for posting on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Please keep it coming. And we'll be back again next week with a normal edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.